Hello, and welcome to this podcast produced by the Ursinus Parley Center for Science and the Common Good. My name is Ben Allwine. And I'm Alexa Beecham. Today, I am joined by Mitch Hunter, a graduate speaker of agroecology in the lab of Dr. Dave Mortensen at Penn State University. His research group at Penn State is interested in the sustainability of land resource management with applications toward weed control and ecology and agricultural fields. He is an author of numerous publications on plant ecology and, agro- and agronomy, a National Science Foundation graduate research fellow, and today, our guest on this podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. So just to begin, can you please tell us a little bit about the sort of overall mission of your work as a research scientist and a teacher? Yeah, thanks. Um, so my overall mission, I would say, is to do research and outreach, um, communications, teaching, and writing to help move agriculture forward to meet the really big goals that, that we need to meet. Um, and I often frame this around that we need to meet by the year 2050, which is just kind of a good marker of where we need to go in the future. So I think some of the biggest goals that we need to meet are um, making sure that we provide an adequate and nutritious diet for everyone on the planet, which, which we don't do today despite having a lot of food in this world. I think we also need to make sure that the way we conduct agriculture is done in a way that sustains the environment and so I th- you know there's a need to drastically reduce the impacts of agricultural production on the environment and also to to reshape the way that we farm in a way that's still productive so that we can meet that first goal of feeding people but that also can sustain ecosystems um, that we depend on and then finally I think that the third big challenge that I'm focused on although there, there are plenty more um, is to make sure that we can continue to do this in the face of climate change and the disruptions that that will bring to farming. And what are some of the personal passions that drive what you do and sort of encourage you to continue following those goals and how have those evolved over time? Yeah, I I just, I love agriculture, I love food. Um, I love to grow food myself and cook it and eat it. And my, I think my passion, it comes from my family background. When when I was born, my parents were still farming um, in Illinois and on a farm where my dad had grown up. They moved off the farm when I was very young and for a good number of years weren't farming, but they've gone back to it. So I get to go back home to a farm you know, every summer and, and then on the holidays, and that's really wonderful for me. Talk with my parents about some of the things that I learn as a scientist and also learn from them and their practical knowledge there on the ground. So to me, I think food and agriculture is just a very present, real way that we interact with the environment. And we get amazing things from it, enjoyment, tasty food, you know, fun with friends, making food and eating it. But also we, there's, a, there's a challenging relationship where every time you try to do something to produce food off a piece of land, you know, there's, there's the possibility to enhance that land and there's the possibility to degrade it. And I think that creates a lot of interesting questions that as a scientist, I hope I can contribute to solving. So getting into concrete sort of issues, something that frequently comes up when discussing food production are genetically modified organisms, or GMOs. And they've garnered a lot of attention in recent years as technologies that have the potential to profoundly shape our world. Can you briefly explain what GMOs are and what some of their applications perhaps in agriculture are? So genetically modified organisms there are lots of different definitions, regulatory, scientific, etc. I think the simplest way to think about them is an organism that has been 
intentionally, that's had its genetic code intentionally changed to add an additional genetic trait. So in the simplest form, it's a small tweak to a single gene. It could be the addition or subtraction of whole genes or, or a number of genes, but essentially it comes down to when scientists have uh, on that very, very minute basis gone in and specifically changed a gene. Now, s scientists and farmers, even traditional and indigenous farmers, have been changing the genomes of crops since we began cultivating them and, and potentially even prior to that when we were just simply collecting them. Anytime you interact with an organism, you have the possibility to affect the genetics of that population. So some form of this has been happening for a long time, but I think that the controversy around genetic modification almost entirely relates to the, the modern techniques that are used uh, to, to change one or a small number of genes in the laboratory. So we've heard a bit about the benefits of using genetically modified organisms in agriculture. Can you speak a bit to some of the dangers of using those? Yeah, I think that, that uh, GMOs, like any technology, have the potential for upside and the potential for downside. Um, and I know that you also interviewed Dr. David Mortensen. I think the story that he can tell about the way that the GMO trait that makes crops tolerant of certain herbicides, the way that's affected uh, the structure of agriculture and the cropping practices that we use, that story is, I think, a really important cautionary tale where a seemingly relatively simple and beneficial trait in which crops like corn and soybeans were transformed to allow them to withstand the application of certain herbicides, then someone inevitably led to the over-application of those herbicides and eventually to a large number of weed species developing genetic resistance to those same herbicides. So that the, the whole point of this transformation, which was to simplify weed management, is kind of undermined because the very weeds that you're trying to control then become very difficult to control. So in, there are, of course, other ways that genetically modified organisms have been used. Um, that's not the only one. It's a prominent one and, and a particularly problematic one. And so I think what that points to for me is that as a tool, as a potentially very powerful tool, we need to recognize that it, genetically, genetic modification may bring upsides and it may bring downsides. And given how it, it's not actually that new anymore, but there are new techniques coming out all the time, and I believe that with the advent of some of the new, quote, gene editing techniques that are more specific and, and more precise and more powerful, most likely there'll be an explosion of the number of organisms and the number of transformations that are done with genetic modification, which, you know, I'm willing to to uh, to entertain the, the possibility that there'll be a lot of really exciting stuff that comes out of that, but also potentially a lot of risks. Genetic modification is often used to, like you mentioned, allow for greater amounts of herbicides to be applied towards crops in an effort to prevent weed growth. So what are some alternative strategies we can use to circumvent the need for genetic modification in controlling weeds? Uh, well, we were able to control weeds for a long time prior to the development of genetically modified organisms. Um, so there's no question that it's doable. There's also no question that prior to the advent of GMOs, we used a lot of herbicides, so a lot of chemicals that are designed to kill weeds. They were here before GMOs. They're not a consequence of GMOs. And so you could continue, uh, you could go back to some of those older programs of, of herbicide use with or without GMOs. But I think 
the more compelling need is to is to develop really diversified programs of weed control and that may include herbicides and used in a responsible way where they won't you know drive genetic resistance in the weed populations um, where they are you know their impacts on the broader environment are minimized but that need to include a, a whole wide array of additional tactics so the most important one to include is crop rotation. There's really nothing worse for developing a problematic weed community in a farm field than growing the same crop over and over, or even different crops that grow in the same window. So if you grow, let's say, corn and soybean, which are, you know, grow in a similar amount of time around this part of Pennsylvania, probably sometimes in, sometime in May to October or November, you're going to adapt that weed population to being the species that can germinate in May, um, or that can germinate in November. And just adding a third crop into that rotation, maybe a wheat crop or really anything else, ideally something perennial like alfalfa or grass hay, adding that third crop, and, and of course it'd be better if you could even go beyond that to even higher levels of diversity, you're gonna break up the communities of weeds and not let those communities build up to a point where they're just perfectly adapted to the, the one or two crops that you're go- growing. So crop rotation is an ancient practice that ought to be really the basis of a strong, a strong integrated weed management program. And then on top of that, there are a large number of other techniques that you can use. If you have a perennial in your rotation, let's say you're growing forages for animals, you're growing uh, something like switchgrass for biofuels, you know, that's, there's not really a market for that now, but maybe there will be someday. Simply mowing those types of, um, those types of crops multiple times during a year is one of the best ways to drive down weed populations. And then um, in an annual setting, if you're growing annual crops like corn, pumpkins, tomatoes, in addition to all the other tactics, you will probably have to do some direct mechanical control to kill those weeds. And that's where we get into kind of a thorny issue because there's a lot of folks who don't want to use um, chemical-based weed control, and I completely understand why. But the alternative to control those weeds that are already germinated or growing is to till the soil. Turn over the soil, use a big mechanical implement to kill those weeds, and that can be quite effective, but it it also means that that soil is disturbed, which makes it more vulnerable to erosion, which makes it more vulnerable to losing nutrients. And so we really have a problem that doesn't have one obvious solution. It's a trade-off between conserving that soil and the use of chemicals that would allow you to avoid the, the tillage. I think in really creative systems, you can, you can balance those, those risks well, drive down chemical use really far or even to zero and still have effective weed control, but it is a challenge. What I would say is, you know, I'm, I'm a, let's say I'm not, I'm not a futurist, I'm not a science fiction guy, but I think robots might be the answer in this case. Um, there are already some robots that have been developed that can traverse a field on their own power, that can identify weeds visually and kill them with either very tightly targeted sprays of a herbicide or with some mechanical you know, approach to, to, to cutting them off. And it's far from being ready for prime time. Uh, you're not gonna see them crawling around the fields anytime soon, but I think that kind of technology, given how we've seen that you know, mobile, location-based, internet-connected technologies have transformed a lot of our lives, that kind of technology could save time, could save labor, and could drastically cut down the amount of herbicides that are used by just targeting them at those 
few spots um, where a weed has, has emerged and could become a problem. So I, I want to remain hopeful. I think diversification is absolutely needs to be the backbone of uh, good weed control, but I also think if technology can help in a, in a sustainable way, let's do it. So you mentioned when people don't necessarily reach a consensus and what's the best way to go forward. So in these conversations where there's perhaps some misunderstanding and some disagreements even, how should scientists be engaging with the public to ensure, to communicate information about their work to ensure public understanding? Mm -hmm. That's a great question and it's a big challenge. It's, it's, you know, being a scientist is already a full-time job and so doing the communication side of things can be tricky and, and yet it's very necessary. I think you need to expect that it's a slow process. Even if you can get 10 people of divergent views in a room, it might take weeks, months, years to get some kind of agreement and, and common understanding among those 10, and then that's just a drop in the bucket for, for the wider society. But I also think that progress is very much possible. We've seen major changes in the way that society thinks about scientific questions in the last few decades when I've been paying attention. The level of agreement that something funky is happening with the climate is certainly higher than it has been in the past, and, and the level of agreement that humans have something to do with that is higher as well. Um, obviously, there's still a large number of people in this country and around the world who don't believe that, and I think over time, conversations around the dinner table and in science class at school and stories that people hear on the radio and as the science continues to mature, I, I believe that we'll get to a point where there's, there's more and more agreement on those sorts of issues. You know, closer to home for this conversation, the number of people who are really cognizant of, of what goes on to produce their food and are thinking hard about the kinds of food that they want to eat, uh, the impacts on them, the impacts on the environment, and hopefully the impacts on broader communities that they're a part of, that, that number is really increasing as well. So I think we have to expect that social change takes a long time, and but I also think that as scientists, if you're not engaged with that, you know, especially in something that has a lot of applied implications like agriculture, you, you know, you're really not living up to the potential of what you can contribute to society. And we by no means have all the answers, but we have a certain type of expertise, and I think scientists who are, you know, willing to sit down and have a conversation with just about anybody can learn and, and help develop a you know, a broader understanding of, of these issues and how to, how to address them. Scientific discourse around GMOs usually takes as a premise that food production must be maximized in order to grow enough to feed everyone in 2050. In your view, is there anything missing from scientists' conversations around plant technologies and environmental stewardship? Definitely. <laughs> that is one of my um, main areas that I focused on. So I would characterize, you know, just to kind of pare it back what you said, I'd characterize the the typical discourse around what needs to happen in food as people say, well, we need to double food production and we need to be more sustainable. And that sounds, that sounds kind of good. People are thinking about the amount of food that we need to grow to feed the world. We don't want people to starve, definitely. Um, and I'm also in favor of sustainability, great. But actually, if you drill into that narrative, which is very, very common, you see it in public press, you see it in scientific papers, scientific presentations at conferences, if you drill into that, you, you come to understand that it's really off-kilter, imbalanced. So to kind of take it one at a time on that first point about needing to double food production, that's a talking point whose day has come. It needs to die. There, the study that showed you know, the need to double food production 
wasn't a bad study, but now it's 12 years old and the amount of food the world has produced has increased quite a lot in that time. And that was also only one study. There are others that use a different set of assumptions, look at the world in a little bit different way, and, and come up with significantly lower amounts of, of food that we need to produce to meet demand. So uh, I, I think that this notion and this talking point that we need to double food production is just too simplistic. It gets in the way of people understanding the complexity of this issue, and it is it is exceedingly complex. So I think we need to moderate that, and instead of talking about doubling food production, we need to think about feeding everybody a nutritious diet. On a calorie basis, at least, we already have plenty of food to feed the world. Now, food flows to where people have money to buy it, and food flows to where there are ports and roads and um, shops and all the infrastructure that's needed to distribute it. So there's places in the world where people don't have the money and don't have the infrastructure and, and are maybe safe, suffering natural disasters or disruption from, from political unrest or from wars, and they just can't get access to the food. And that's ultimately, uh, to me, those really thorny issues of getting food to where it needs to go to the roughly 700 million people a year who experience food insecurity, that's the, the problem we need to focus on. You know, you and I and our families, um, if we... You know, if we get hungry, we go to the grocery store. We're not the problem, and we don't, you know, we need to focus on where the problem is. So I think that that narrative needs to be flipped on its head, and I also think the notion that we need to be more sustainable is a good notion, but we need to put something concrete behind that. It's, it's pretty vague to say that. What does that mean? How do we get to be sustainable? How much do we need to do to become sustainable? And what I've tried to do is come up with and identify really concrete numbers that tell us when we've gone far enough and allow us to track our progress. You know, if you think about in the last 10 years, sustainability in agriculture has been talked about so much. Clearly, you know, surely we must have figured it out by now. But if you look at the numbers globally, our in, and, and, and within this country as well, for the most part, agriculture's impact on the environment is getting worse. We're doing more. We're emitting more greenhouse gases. We're letting more nutrients flow into waterways, although that's, that's an issue where we're starting to make some progress. So I think we need to have some hard numbers, and rather than just saying, generally, let's be more sustainable, uh, we need to think about what's the goal? What is a level of pollution that we think the planet and society can handle? And we need to get to that level or be making progress before we can even, you know, even think about think about backing off. So I, those are some issues that I, I'm pretty passionate about, and I think if we can change the way we frame them and talk about them, then that can help uh, make some progress. Um, are there any other questions or topics that we did not cover today that you'd like to bring up? Wow, there's so much we could talk about. Um, <laughs> I just think it's great that, that the Arsinus campus and student body is so engaged in these issues, and you know, having multiple speakers, I've heard that you know, the, the, they've been very well attended and have generated a lot of discussion. And I think, you know, that's step one, is getting people to think about this. And I don't have all the answers, but um, as people learn about it, they can come to their own conclusions and figure out how each of us are going to help contribute to making this transition. Actually, I have one more. Finally, what steps can we as scientists, students, or citizens take to continue these conversations in our own lives? I think it's just being kind of fearless and willing to, to bring them up and, and talk about it with with your friends, with your, you know, your uncle, maybe it's somebody that would be uncomfortable to bring this up with because maybe you suspect that they disagree with you. But I've actually found, you know, I'm out here saying that I think 
agriculture needs to change in, in X, Y, and Z ways. And that's a challenging thing to say to, to people in agriculture. But I've got family members in agriculture, and they've been so warm and accepting. And maybe, you know, maybe it doesn't mean that they completely agree with me, but I think that they get that I'm doing this out of good faith, trying to solve problems. And I think if, if you approach it in that way and are also willing to listen to people and change your own mind, then you know, those sorts of uncomfortable conversations are really how we move this forward. So a little bit of fearlessness and just willing to put, put these ideas out there, I think, is um, probably the best first step. Well, thank you, Mitch, for joining us. Thank you.